Hi everyone and welcome to episode 10 of Infraction, our true crime podcast. I'm Nadia. And I'm Sally. And today our episode is a listener suggestion. This episode's suggestion has come from our lovely listener Brit from Australia. So hi to you Brit and thank you so much for your suggestion. There's a lot of pressure on you here, Sal, because Brit's very interested to hear your views on the guy in this case. And I, for one, am particularly interested in hearing kind of what you think from a psychological point of view. So I hope you've brought your brain today. Me too. (laughs) (laughs) So the man at the centre of today's episode is 47-year-old Carl Charlie Brandt. Although his first name was Carl, everyone called him Charlie. So that's how we will refer to him in this episode. Charlie grew up in Fort Wayne, Indiana, but moved to Florida in 1972 when he was 15 years old. He moved there with his father, Herbert, his older sister, Angela, and his two very young baby sisters. Shortly after this move to Florida, their father, Herbert, remarried, and in the year of 1974, Herbert moved back to Indiana with his new wife and took his two youngest daughters with him. He left Charlie and Angela in Florida under the care of their grandparents. Ten years later, in 1984, Charlie got an electronics degree and started his career as a radar specialist. Two years later, in 1986, Charlie married his girlfriend. Her name was Teresa, but everyone called her Terry. Terry and Charlie had met just the year before on a blind date. Terry worked as a manager of a retail store and the two hit it off straight away. People who knew Charlie said that he had a few girlfriends over the years, but his connection with Terry was special. Strangely, Charlie and Terry did not invite any family members or friends to their wedding, but after their wedding, the couple settled in Big Pine Key, which is part of a string of tropical islands in the US called the Florida Keys. They built their own house and they lived right next to the water. Their life seemed quite picture perfect and their families and friends said that their life was really good. Charlie and Terry travelled together and went out in their boat. They also enjoyed fishing together. They did everything together and they even made each other's lunches to take to work. A friend commented that if her husband loved her even one third of the amount that Charlie loved Terry, then she would consider herself the luckiest girl in the world. Unfortunately, seven years into their marriage in 1993, things started to change a bit. Terry wrote in her diary that Charlie was starting to act a little bit depressed. She wrote things such as, Charlie had a rough day, started to talk things out, talkative time, a bit emotional, and weird talk and not a good night. There's very little more to report for the next 10 or so years. The couple continued to work at their marriage and really they seemed fine to family and friends. In 2001, Herbert's second wife died and so Charlie went to stay with him for a week or so to comfort him. His younger sister Jessica noted that she thought this was quite nice as Charlie and Herbert weren't particularly close. Angela, Charlie's older sister, also went to visit. She said it was a sad event, but it was nice for the family to be reunited. She mentioned that Charlie was acting differently, that he wouldn't meet her gaze, but this could easily have been chalked up to the struggles he was having with his mental health. So by struggles with his mental health, are you just referring to him grieving at this point, or was there some kind of established mental health issue at this point? Um, I wouldn't say it was established. It's quite hard to tell how Charlie was at this point, but... Basically, we can just infer what we can from the diary entries from his wife, Terry. And those were kind of like some of the quotes that I read out just a couple of minutes ago where, you know, he was acting quite emotional and he wasn't very talkative and they didn't have, they weren't really having a good time with each other. So, yeah, we're kind of inferring it from that at this point. Yeah. 
In 2004, Florida's summer hit hard and with it came a number of hurricanes. Living so close to the water and being on an island meant that Charlie and Terry's home was likely to be hit. By September 9th, 2004, residents of Florida Keys were told to evacuate. Although Charlie's sister Jessica did live in Florida, she lived in a place called Ormond Beach. This is sort of the other side to the Florida Keys, about a six or seven hour drive away, and therefore there was very little chance that the hurricane would reach her. However, Jessica was concerned for her older brother and his wife, so she phoned the couple to check in and see if they were okay. Terry advised Jessica that her and Charlie were packing their bags and leaving to stay with their niece Michelle. Terry's sister, Mary Lou, had a daughter called Michelle Jones, and Terry and her niece Michelle were very close. Michelle was 37 years old and lived in Orlando, about an hour away from where Charlie's father and sister lived, so Terry told Jessica on the phone that maybe they would pop over that weekend to visit them because they'd be in the area. In Orlando, Michelle lived in a wonderful four-bedroom house that had a pool and plenty of room for Charlie and Terry to be able to stay for as long as they needed. Terry and Charlie spent the next day or so after the evacuation announcement packing up their things and presumably trying to hurricane-proof their home. The couple arrived at Michelle, their niece's home, on Saturday, September 11th. The next day, on the Sunday, Charlie phoned his dad and said that they were in the area and that they wanted to come and see him. Terry and Charlie arrived at Herbert's house at around 2pm and the three of them did some cooking, drank some beer and had a nice chat before they made their way the short distance to Charlie's younger sister, Jessica's house. At Jessica's, they had dinner, took some photos, had a laugh, and Jessica and Charlie both spoke to their two other sisters on the phone. During this call, Angela asked Charlie if she could meet up with him the following day, so this would be the Monday, but Charlie said that he couldn't as he had plans. He signed off the call by saying, It was good talking to you again, Angie. Charlie had made comments during the night that he had wanted to move back to their home in the Florida Keys the next day, as the hurricane had already bypassed the Keys and had moved up the Gulf. Jessica and Herbert hoped that this wasn't what his plans for the following day were as they felt it still wasn't very safe. When Terry and Charlie left to go back to Michelle's that night, Charlie hugged both his father and sister very tightly. Both recalled that this was not usual for him, he was much more a pat on the back type of guy. The next day, Monday the 13th of September, back at Michelle's house in Orlando, Terry, Charlie and Michelle had spent the evening drinking. Michelle had arranged for one of her friends to come over, but Michelle ended up phoning her and telling her not to come because she said the atmosphere was quite awkward. Charlie and Terry had been drinking too much and had got into an argument. After this call to her friend, Michelle stopped answering her phone. Mary Lou could not get a hold of either her daughter Michelle or her sister Terry. By Tuesday 14th of September, Jessica assumed that she couldn't get a hold of Charlie or Terry because they were driving back to Florida Keys, as they had indicated they were going to do when they'd gone over for dinner. By Wednesday 15th, Mary Lou was overwhelmed with worry. Unfortunately, she lived too far away to pop over to Michelle's home to check in on her daughter, so she phoned one of Michelle's friends. Her name was Debbie. She asked her if she'd be able to go over to the house and just check that the three of them were okay. Debbie drove over to Michelle's and, with Mary Lou still on the phone, she started knocking loudly on the door. Nobody answered and the front door was locked. Debbie went round the side of the house to try and gain entry through the garage. Charlie Brandt's decomposing body was hanging from the ceiling in the garage. It appeared that he had committed suicide by hanging himself with some bedsheets. Debbie, of course, phoned the police and they quickly arrived on the scene. Debbie told them that two women, Michelle and Terry, were with Charlie in this house. The police entered the house and, tragically, found the bodies of Michelle Jones and Terry Brandt. 
Terry was laying on the sofa, having been stabbed seven times in the chest. Michelle's body was in her own bedroom. She had been stabbed once and her bloody clothes had been removed and had been placed in the bathroom sink. She had then been decapitated and her head had been placed <sighs> next to her body. Jesus. The perpetrator had also removed her heart. What? Something else that confused the investigators was that there were Victoria's Secret's bras and underwear cut in half and scattered around Michelle's room. Blimey, this has taken quite a turn. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it has. <laughs> the police found no signs of forced entry at the home. The police stated that Michelle's murder and mutilation of her body would have taken a long time. Pairing this with the fact that Charlie had committed suicide, the police concluded that Charlie had murdered his wife and niece and then had killed himself. Both Terry and Michelle's family were distraught. They couldn't believe this could happen. Charlie had appeared to love Michelle and Terry very deeply and nobody could understand why he would do this. Nobody, that is, except for Angela. Angela Brandt, Charlie's older sister, was called into an interview with the police so they could try and ascertain who Charlie was as a person and get a grasp on his character. What Angela revealed shocked many people to their core. During Angela's interview with the Seminole County Sheriff's Department, this is what she said. On January 3rd, 1971, Angela had been 15 and her brother Charlie had been 13 years old. They lived with their mother and father and their two baby sisters in Fort Wayne in Indiana. She said it was 9 or 10pm and she was sat watching the TV and once the show was done, she went upstairs to bed and started reading her book. She said her mum was in the bath reading a magazine and her dad was also in the bathroom. He was shaving in front of the mirror. She said that all of a sudden she heard loud noises, which she describes as thinking were firecrackers. She says that now she has no idea why she thought that the noise were firecrackers, but at the time she just couldn't think what else could be making a loud noise like that. She pulled her sheets down and got out of bed. She said she heard her father yelling, Charlie don't, Charlie stop. She said her mum was screaming and Angela heard her say, Angela, call the police. Angela was still in her room at this time. She said everything happened really fast. She said 13-year-old Charlie came into her room brandishing a gun. He raised his arm, aimed the gun at Angela and then pulled the trigger. Angela heard a click, but miraculously, the gun didn't have any bullets left in it. When Charlie realised this, he threw it to the floor and Angela kicked it under the bed. She says that next, a physical altercation ensued. She said that she can't quite remember how it happened, but she thinks he struck her and she started fighting back. The next thing she remembers was laying flat on her back on the floor next to her bed. She said Charlie was sat on top of her and was strangling her. She was drifting in and out of consciousness. She thought she was going to die, but then Charlie stopped. Angela said that she saw the madness, the glazed look on his face, just disappear. She said he began to look more like himself, and then he looked at Angela and said, What am I doing? Angela said, I don't know, but I think you shot Dad. Angela told Charlie to get off of her so she could go figure out what had happened. And I'm actually going to play you the next part of her interview so you can really hear the emotion for yourselves. My next step, I was trying to get out of the house. He goes, so you're not going to leave me, are you? Of course I said no. Sorry. No, I would run out the door. And I did as soon as I thought he was far enough away. I ran. Have you ever seen Texas Chainsaw Massacre? Yeah. I saw it once in my life. I could never watch it again. You know the girl screaming? Yeah. The way she ran screaming? That was me. 
I was just a little girl. I was running through the snow in my bloody nightgown, torn, screaming. I got to the first house right across the street. I didn't knock on the door. I turned the knob, and it was locked. And then I ran to the next house, and by the time I got to the next house, my brother had apparently come down the steps. He was outside. And all my life, I've heard him screaming after me, Angie, you promised you wouldn't leave me. You promised you wouldn't leave me. Oh my god, wow, so she is really distraught. I mean, listening to that, you can, I don't know, you can still hear the fear and also the almost guilt. It comes across very strongly in that, doesn't it, at how heartbreaking experience that was. So at this point, Nad, I mean, what had happened? Had he shot his dad? Um, yeah, so 13-year-old Charlie had shot his dad. Luckily, he survived. But unfortunately, Charlie had also shot their mother several times and he had killed her. What's actually even more tragic is that she was eight months pregnant at the time. Jesus. So I don't know, like, what what are your thoughts on this? Because he's so young. So to me, this sounds like psychosis. Okay. Because he's been, well, from what we I know at this point, he was completely fine up to this point. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not to say that he actually was. It just means that he's not been, I don't know, horrible since of three-year-old or something Mm -hmm. um so yeah i guess at this point my thoughts are probably leaning towards he's had some kind of hallucinations be those kind of just auditory or visual um so there's a type of hallucination called demand hallucination which is what people tend to think of when they think of someone being psychotic um where it's maybe like this person wants me to kill you Mm -hmm. or something but i think the key thing to focus on here at this point is that after the event he sort of came back to reality which suggests at some point his his experience of reality was incredibly distorted to the point that what he was doing made sense and then suddenly he asks his sister what he's doing and he feels very guilty so yeah i suppose at this point i'd very much be thinking that he's having some sort of psychotic episode And that isn't usually just a split second thing. So typically there might have been symptoms there before. He could have something underlying. Um, It's quite hard to tell in a child, I think, if they've got something like schizophrenia. Mm -hmm. Um, Because actually a lot of the symptoms is not just people going around brandishing knives. Uh, It can be things like sleepless nights and stuff. Mm -hmm. So I don't know, that would be my thoughts at this point. But I suppose I don't probably know quite enough Mm -hmm. about his childhood to be certain about it well no okay so that's actually really interesting so firstly like on the point that you literally just said about his childhood he had a completely normal childhood and i think that's very important to stress there doesn't seem to be any kind of triggering event or anything that happened to him um that would you know maybe suggest why um the psychosis or whatever he is experiencing started so i mean if we think about other people who have killed their mothers i can think off the top of my head ed kemper and gypsy rose blanchard and both of those were abused quite significantly by their mother that's not the case here and i know obviously that isn't the case to say that maybe like that's why all people kill their mothers or whatever but i do think it's important that everyone kind of like knows and understands that really he had a very normal childhood so after this shooting he was taken into psychiatric care and he had three separate individual psychiatric evaluations all three evaluations failed to determine what had triggered the shooting 
One of Charlie's psychiatrists later stated that he had been looking for mental illness and Charlie hadn't shown the signs or symptoms of serious mental illness. Um, this is putting you on the spot a little bit here, but I mean, what's the difference between mental illness and then, what do you call it, like psychological illness or psychopathy or whatever? Like, what is the difference there? Is there a difference? Well, so, no, I don't think really there is. So from a point of view of how it's studied, you would think of this more as kind of abnormal psychological behaviours. So that just means that your brain's not functioning completely normally. Mm -hmm. So that can be a very temporary thing um, where, I don't know, your sort of uh, neurotransmitter levels are much lower or actually it can be the fact that uh, your brain structure is just completely different, which, you know, maybe means you don't have, uh, don't feel fear or you lack kind of any sense of inhibition, etc. So I think at this point, it's probably important to note that you don't need to have a triggering event to develop psychosis Mm -hmm. or schizophrenia, which can often lead to psychosis. So psychosis is just a collection of symptoms, effectively. Um, So things like hallucinations. So it's not a condition in the same way as maybe depression is or something mm-hmm. um so yeah i think it's important to note you don't need a triggering event to have this um whilst as we've said a lot of the time there might be underlying things that spark psychosis actually you just have to think the brain is such an amazing clever finely balanced thing that all it requires is for something to you know that harmony that yeah. equilibrium to be disrupted for something like this to happen so obviously a lot of the time trauma can be a catalyst for that disruption but it isn't essential so I think yeah at this point he sounds like he's had a very nice childhood was a completely normal boy but as we said it's very hard in children I mean let's be honest they're quite bizarre little creatures (laughs) it's quite hard to diagnose when their behavior is verging on abnormal Mm -hmm. so who knows there may have been the telltale signs Um, But we can't be 100% certain. And also, again, because it's a collection of symptoms and they're not always permanently presenting themselves, I don't think it's probably particularly unusual that then having had a psychiatric assessment, nobody found anything. Because if you kind of think of that equilibrium being a bit restored, I mean, obviously this is incredibly rare and a lot of the time you probably would go on to find something. Um, But I do think it's completely possible that a doctor may then say, actually, this feels like I'm speaking to a completely normal Mm -hmm. child. I just think, I don't know if you've seen, we need to talk about Kevin, but this doesn't sound like that. You know, it doesn't sound like someone who's born inherently bad and it's just the epitome of evil okay so when you say psychosis is that the same thing as like what is largely kind of called like a psychological break like yes yeah so it's where you become completely detracted from reality so yeah your experience of reality is not the same as everyone else's basically at this point you're unable to separate if things like voices or things you're seeing or even smelling are real so yeah that is what people would refer to as a psychotic break okay so what you're basically saying is then when he killed his mother, attempted to kill his dad and attempted to kill his sister, he could have been having a psychotic break at the time, not knowing what he was doing or being driven by something else. And then when he came to, he was kind of just the boy that he'd always been before the incident. And that could be why um, none of the psychiatrists picked up any kind of Uh, indication of mental illness yeah so that would definitely be my initial thoughts I would caveat that with people think of 
typically psychotic breaks to be like this where it's i don't know five minutes of madness typically that wouldn't be the case there'd be probably months of symptoms building up a lot of people may live with symptoms of psychosis for a lot of their lives okay um so yeah definitely possible but this is still would be a very rare thing for it to be quite so short-lived okay right okay so that's actually really interesting so we can kind of come back to that um when we get on to the next weird bit of this case so um yes after the shooting of his um dad the attempted shooting of his sister and the murder of his mother and unborn sibling charlie spent one year at a psychiatric hospital uh, before going back to live with his family and this was because he was too young to be charged with murder under indiana law at the time so the criminal age of responsibility uh, was, I think, 18 in the 1970s, but it's, it's quite hard to tell. So it was 17 or 18. And he, of course, was 13 at the time. So he spent one year at a psychiatric hospital. He then went back to um, into the care of his family. And that's when the family moved to Florida, which is where we kind of started this episode. So how do we know it all? How did his family feel having them? come back i mean having seen someone like that and watched your child murder your wife and their mum that must be quite a frightening thing to to welcome that child back into your home even though you know they've received all the appropriate care so for angela i think it was especially hard because she was 15 at the time obviously when it happened and 16 when her brother came home and of course he tried to shoot her the two younger baby sisters had no idea this happened and actually until angela went in and did this police interview after charlie was found dead and you know after it was suggested that he'd murdered his wife and niece that's when jessica and their other younger sister found out that that's how their mother had died because they'd always been told their mother had died in a car accident herbert i think kind of just maybe thought that this was just like a one-off kind of freak accident or incident because charlie was actually told that he had to spend longer than a year in psychiatric care but herbert petitioned to get him released after one year so i don't know you can infer from that what you kind of want to infer from that but i don't know i think that that means to me that herbert didn't really see him as a threat whereas i think angela was still quite scared of him yep i agree sounds the same so we are now going to jump forward again to 2004 and the days after charlie killed his wife and niece and then himself We can maybe understand now a little bit more of the psychology behind this man. Perhaps now the murders of Terry and Michelle make slightly more sense because we know that this wasn't the first time he had killed someone. Unfortunately, the police suspected that the murders of Terry and Michelle were not the second and third time he had killed. They had a strong suspicion that he had killed many times before. The surgical precision that Charlie had undertaken when he had decapitated Michelle and cut out her heart indicated to the police that he had done this before. A search of Charlie's house uncovered surgical books, posters and clippings of the human anatomy and a collection of Victoria's Secrets catalogues. These catalogues raised a lot of questions initially for the police, but later reports stated that Charlie had been infatuated with his niece Michelle and had apparently in private nicknamed her Victoria's Secret. This might explain also why he had cut up and scattered the Victoria's Secret's underwear around Michelle's body. And um, I guess maybe the fact that he was infatuated with her might have been something to do with why he'd been um, very precise with the way that he'd killed Michelle and very kind of frenzied and aggressive in the way that he killed Terry. Yeah, that is interesting, isn't it? It sounds almost then like, I don't know, he'd taken pride in 
how he went about killing Michelle, uh-huh. whereas Terry was more about he just wanted to get the deed done. Mm-hmm, exactly. And um, I kind of, I don't know, I don't know if I think about these cases too much when I just stay up till like 3am researching them, but in my head, I kind of feel that's the exact same with like the killing of his mum versus the shooting of his dad. Like he shot his dad once and then he unloaded like several bullets into his mum and I don't know it's it it's not like the same precision but it's the same kind of like get one of them out of the way whilst we're kind of doing the deed on the other one do you know what I mean yeah absolutely and I guess it just shows two different sides to him there mm-hmm. almost doesn't it one suggests a completely a panicked murderer mm-hmm. and the other one suggests maybe a more calculated calculated murderer. Yeah. so you sort you start to get two different theories running then about him don't you yeah so When the police searched Charlie's online history, they found that he had regularly searched for autopsy images and also watched snuff films that showed excessive violence against women and necrophilia. There were also newspaper clippings of human hearts. This, along with the posters of the female anatomy, led the police to believe that he might have been a serial killer. At one point in the investigation, the lead investigator had identified 26 other victims who might have been linked to Charlie. These were unsolved murders that had a similar style and MO to Charlie Brandt. We know for certain that Charlie has been connected to two of these at least. At this point, uh, can I just say that it's unclear if he has been charged posthumously with the next two murders I'm going to mention because some sources say that he has been charged and others just say he was connected and I don't want to give you guys any false information but the first victim that he's been connected to is Sherry Parisho. So in July of 1989, three years after Charlie married Terry and the couple had moved to Big Pine Key, the body of Sherry Parisho was found by fishermen. Her body had been in the water for less than 12 hours when she was found, and she was found around 0.3 kilometres away from where Charlie lived. It was concluded that she had died from having her throat slit and then had her heart removed. Confusingly, Angela's husband told a TV show who was documenting the murders that Terry Brandt had actually suspected her husband of murdering this victim all along. Terry had supposedly confided in her brother-in-law and said that the night Sherry had gone missing, Charlie came home wet and bloody and claimed that he had been fishing. He claimed the blood he was cleaning off of him came from the fish. So I tried googling whether it's usual to get bloody when fishing, but I mean, as you can probably imagine, Google was not particularly sure what I was asking. But I know your dad fishes out. I mean, does Dave ever come home covered in blood after he's been fishing? Is that a usual thing? Well, Dave's not allowed in the house when he smells of fish guts. <laughs> um, <laughs> but if I had to guess, I would say that there probably is some blood um, from when you are, if you've got the fish on the beach, for example. Um, but I'd be pretty confident probably in saying it would be a different amount of blood mm-hmm. than if you just killed a human being. Mm-hmm. So let's assume that it was probably quite obvious to Terry that it wasn't a small amount of fish blood yeah well then that kind of raises the question on whether or not terry knew that her husband was a killer because her family stressed that terry never knew about charlie's past or the fact that he killed his mother but i guess this kind of a confession from the brother-in-law suggests maybe that terry did have suspicions that he was a murderer yeah i completely agree i think at this point i'm kind of thinking of two scenarios so i guess in the first one Terry has no idea that Charlie killed his mother as a small boy. 
And in that scenario, I mean, I think I'd probably speak for everyone when if your partner came home maybe covered in a bit of blood, I don't think I'd instantly assume they're a murderer. No. If they've been a loving partner to me mm-hmm. in all of my marriage, I don't think your mind would initially go there. Mm-hmm. So maybe you might think, oh gosh, that's a bit weird. It was the same night as a murder took place. But then maybe it's completely understandable that she wouldn't go on to report it to the police or anything. Mm-hmm. But then I suppose on the flip side of that, it is possible that in their marriage and, you know, assuming Charlie regretted what he did or didn't remember it, that maybe actually he had confessed to Terry that he'd killed his mum. Mm. And in that case, I don't know about you, but if I had suspicions, you know, looked a bit guilty that he'd then been near the scene of a second crime, I think I probably would go to the police, particularly if I was suspicious enough that I confided it in my brother-in-law you know it's obviously not just a passing thought she's had at this point Mm -hmm. it's something she's really thinking god you know he's covered in blood there's been a murder this is really strange but at that point it does seem quite bizarre that she wouldn't report it to someone or or do anything about it if for no other reason then i would at this point start to feel quite worried for my own safety yeah and that's and that's like that's a really fair point i don't know if it's true i don't know if um her brother-in-law is kind of just saying this sort of after the fact I think we yeah. have to question why he didn't go to the police if this is true, if Terry did come to him and say, um, well, I think that uh, Charlie's involved in the murder of, of Terry because I think yeah. Terry's brother-in-law, who she supposedly confided in, knew for certain about Charlie's past. So it seems quite strange to me that if she did confess this to him, you know, why didn't he go to the police? Yeah, I completely agree because he's got solid reason to yeah. believe it would be a completely possible thing. Yeah, yeah. But like you say, I hadn't thought of it like that. You know, maybe it wasn't true. Yeah, yeah, it kind of does seem a little bit maybe like that. But I mean, we don't know. Um, the second murder that the police have connected Charlie Brandt to occurred in November 1995. The mutilated body of Darlene Tola was found along a highway wrapped in a plastic bag. Her head and her heart had been removed and these were missing. The police concluded that Charlie would have used this highway to get in and out of the Florida Keys and the mutilation and the missing heart, as well as the decapitation of the head, fit his MO. Therefore, this murder has also been linked to him. If you can remember from the start of the episode, kind of briefly mentioned that according to Terry's diary, Charlie had been acting very depressed and emotional. That appeared to start in 1993 and this murder here happened in 1995. And I'm not saying that's a connection or that feeling or being depressed makes you murder. I'm just kind of putting it out there as food for thought that maybe he was acting different and strange to Terry because he was committing these murders. But, I mean, we don't know. There are two other potential victims that, had there been more evidence, might have also been connected to Charlie Brandt. In 1972, 12-year-old Carol Sullivan was abducted, murdered and decapitated. Charlie would have been 20 years old at this time. The second potential victim is 20-year-old Lisa Saunders, who went missing in 1988. She had been dragged from her car, beaten and stabbed, and when her body was found, her heart was missing too. Like I said, these have not been formally linked, but there is a strong suspicion that Charlie may have committed these murders too. So my personal view is that he did kill Sherry Parisho and Darlene Tuller, and I suspect many other poor women too. Because, and you know, we've talked about this before a lot on this show, but the level of escalation here is huge. 
In my opinion, he did not go from shooting his mother when he was 13 and then do nothing for 34 years and then all of a sudden stab his wife and decapitate and remove the heart of his niece. There's no way that escalation happened without something else happening in between, in my opinion. The other two murders I mentioned also fit in with his pattern of escalation because Charlie would have been 20 when Carol Sullivan was brutally murdered. She had her head removed, but there was no removal of any organs or the heart. 10 years later, when Lisa Saunders was murdered, Charlie would have been 30. Here, he had the same MO of removing the head, but had escalated to the heart removal at this point. There could be other murders that, you know, could have happened in between these two victims that might have shown a more, like, linear pattern of how he got from decapitation to organ removal. And kind of adding to this, Sherry was murdered in 1989, the year after Lisa Saunders was murdered. I don't think he'd go 10 years without killing between Carol and Lisa and then within one year kill again. So I think there might be other victims that we just don't know about. Although, I guess I guess if you're playing a devil's advocate, this could just mean that he actually didn't kill any of these women and that's why the dates don't stack up. But I just, I personally just find that quite hard to believe and I sort of stand by my previous statement that it would be absurd to think that he went from shooting his mum and then just lay low for 34 years and then he carried out this brutal double murder that had the exact same method of mutilation as these other women who were found in the area right near where he had been living at the time. Didn't you say, though, that there was up to 26 women the, the police suspected but didn't have sufficient evidence for? Or did I mishear that? No, no, no. That was, well, kind of. There were 26 other um, victims who matched his MO, but they basically narrowed it down to probably seven um, they linked the two that I mentioned at the first, so Sherry Parisho and Darlene Tuller, and then the other two that I mentioned, Carol Sullivan and Lisa Saunders, were two that they think he did do, but they don't have enough evidence to prove because they happened quite a long time ago and there wasn't enough sort of evidence at the crime scene. So, yes, he had been, you know, in the first instance linked to 26 murders, but I think some of them, either there wasn't enough evidence or some of them maybe other people got convicted for or stuff like that. But if you assume that, say, even 30% of those women, that would bridge that 10-year gap, wouldn't it? Absolutely. If he was actually connected to some of them, Mm -hmm. which then I suspect would stand to support your theory. Mm -hmm. I guess the question on most people's mind is, does this sound like someone who had a psychotic break? Is it someone who, you know, is it possible that he just continuously had these psychotic breaks when, you know, he was like out of the house, he was out and about, he managed to murder these women, dump them in places that, you know, would not really be linked to him um, and get away with murdering all these women over all these years. Is it possible that that is down to continuous psychological or psychotic breaks? Or is that just because he's, you know, just a bad human being? So I think it's a really hard one to know without knowing more about him and frankly seeing a living interview with him. I guess I could probably convince myself into one of two theories here. So the first is that he experiences his first episode of psychosis age 13 and kills his parents. Mm -hmm. So and I think this goes back to what I said earlier, which is that it's actually very rare that you would have such a short lived episode of psychosis. A lot of the time, um, psychosis is a very severe form of, you know, schizophrenia or something. And it is often a lot more enduring than that. So if not controlled, people will live for very long periods of time with these demand hallucinations and voices telling them what to do. And there is symptoms that 
uh, as I said earlier, often precede that. So things like depression, and this is absolutely not to say that if you have depression, you're very likely Mm -hmm. to experience psychosis. It's just that often in these cases you do realize that the behavior changes have started much earlier Mm -hmm. the sign of the disruption of the kind of equilibrium of your brain so i think it is possible that he had you know the psychosis starts at 13 he kills someone and then what you could you know if you were playing slightly devil's advocate here he continues having these hallucinations keeps them under control i think the thing that strikes me a little bit about this case is his marriage to terry yeah he obviously loves her very much he's described by everyone as being a very doting husband Mm -hmm. and that doesn't traditionally fit with him being a psychopath so let's assume for a minute he's not he's not what a psychopath yeah so he does get a bit depressed he does start to get a bit distant um he's still ongoing hearing these hallucinations maybe he manages to resist them for a very long time but he does cave into you know a voice telling him just have a look at anatomy just have a look at how you would kill someone mm-hmm. etc i think it's perfectly possible that if this was the case maybe the couple of killings he's been linked to maybe they were him as well because like you say the 10 year break does seem unlikely so yeah let's assume that he's possibly killed a couple of these women but you know not because he's a bloodthirsty psychopath uh just because this is still an effect of what he's living with at this point okay so it's kind of like putting into action maybe the things that whatever's happening in his brain the urges that this maybe psychosis is bringing He's looked into the things, he's looked into anatomy, he's he's got the posters and stuff like that, he's got the clippings of the heart, but then that's not enough anymore, and that's why he maybe went out and, and killed like the two women that he's been connected to. The thing you have to think is that when people are going through these hallucinations, it's not just one person, one voice saying the same thing all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, there's some really like amazing TED Talks where people with schizophrenia hallucinations say that voices in their head have told them the answer on a maths exam Mm -hmm. you know this isn't just one voice saying go out and kill people Mm -hmm. it's a lot more nuanced than that so i do think it could be possible that yeah he's had these kind of voices who've just encouraged him and encouraged him slowly Uh, and you have to think this is his own brain so this might be a voice telling him to look up these things but he is absorbing this knowledge that he's learning on how to kill people um And I think the key thing here is that I agree that it's very unlikely that he does something as a 13-year-old and then kills his wife and and niece. There does seem like there probably was things that happened in between that. So I don't think it's impossible to say that he didn't, as part of uh, the psychological abnormality or whatever he was experiencing, that there wasn't cases in between that. But it is still possible that that was why he killed Terry... And his niece, it's, I don't think it's out of the realms of possibility. So are you are you suggesting that maybe the fact that he'd learnt these things, he had the, the surgical books and he'd obviously learnt a lot about it, is it possible, do you know, that he would be able to then perform the kind of surgical uh, decapitation and removal of Terry's heart, having never done it before and do it with such precision, having never done it before because he's absorbed all the knowledge from everything he's been reading? Or do you think that it is probably like more likely that he would have gone out and maybe like almost like done a practice run, that kind of thing? I don't think the debate here should be centred on whether or not when he killed Terry and his niece, whether that was the second time in his life he'd ever killed. Mm -hmm. I don't think you can ever know that. And I don't particularly think 
it's relevant in some ways because whether he killed in between or not, you still don't know the real reason for that. I think the reason in this case that we're even talking about psychosis instead of psychopathy is because of that very striking story his sister told when he was younger where he seemed to come out of this crazed space he was in Mm -hmm. and suddenly seem remorseful. So I think that's the thing where you've got to think, okay, well, maybe this isn't the psychopath. Maybe this is someone who's hearing voices, who's having very distorted thoughts, who periodically does become incredibly detached from reality. So I think that, for me, is why you might lean towards the psychosis thing. An alternative, of course, is that he is a psychopath. He wouldn't be the first psychopath to have a wife to be able to show apparent empathy and convince people that he's charming you know in fact it's quite a trademark of being a psychopath there's a reason that they're able to kill so many people and that's because they come across as nice and and trusting you know that's why women go home with these these men that then go on to serially kill like ted bundy exactly so i'm not discounting that as a theory either because actually maybe it is possible that he'd from a very young age thought about killing things he finally has his first kill of his parents he runs out of bullets annoyingly for him he then thinks oh god you know i need to think of something here you know they're traditionally psychopaths too tend to have quite high iqs Mm -hmm. so you know maybe at that point he thinks right i'm gonna pretend none of that was me i'll spend a year in a psychiatric hospital and then i'll come out the other side of this and he's got a taste for it he goes away he learns about his fascination with cutting up bodies and with women this is obviously a sexualized element here Mm -hmm. you'd think looking at the victoria's secret side of it Mm -hmm. um and who knows then he goes on a killing spree every couple of years the police have never linked all the cases and then finally i guess if you were gonna lean towards this theory maybe he's typically got kind of a kill pattern Uh, the stress of the trauma of having to escape this hurricane throws that all a bit out of kilter he's stuck away from home and the only two people he's stuck with are his wife and this woman who how convenient he's happened to be infatuated with her his whole life his niece and so he frenziedly kills his wife to get her out the way and because for me it sounds like if he is a psychopath, he's possibly lost a bit of control at this point. We talk about escalation, but I think a lot of the time with psychopaths, you also see a point where they lose control and they stop becoming so calculated and and so unable to be caught. So let's say that's happened. He really kills his wife. He's in a bit of a mad panic, but then he thinks this is perfect. It's just me and Michelle and he takes care and does the most perfect job he's ever done of decapitating and removing organs of his life because as people have hinted at this is the woman that he's always had a bit of an obsession for um yeah and then afterwards having realized actually you know he has lost control he's killed his wife he's killed this woman he's infatuated with not just some stranger and he doesn't know what to do with that he doesn't know what the next step is or maybe he feels like there is no next step that's maybe what it was always about for him and so ultimately he kills himself so that's always kind of been like the weird thing for me was like, why has he always, you know, if he has killed these other women, he's always done it away from home. And, or just even if he hasn't killed the, all these other women, like, why did he choose to kill Terry and Michelle? And 
you know, the lead investigator basically thinks that he planned it because he said that um, he said something like their bags were packed and they were by the front door and the hurricane had passed and basically they, they could have gone home. But he thinks that they chose to stay an extra night and that Charlie had chosen that because um, he knew what he was going to do. And to me, like that just doesn't make any sense. Like if he was planning to do it I don't think he would pack his bags and also like from like a personal point of view like if we're going anywhere the next day even if we're just going to one of our parents houses or something um we pack our bags the night before and leave them in the corridor I don't think it's hard to believe that maybe they had planned to leave the next day and then something happened or he had a psychotic break or he just got you know the urges or whatever um and then he just did it kind of like in the spur of the moment I don't like I don't personally know um, but my views are that the fact that his bags were packed and stuff by the front door, that's a thing that a lot of people talk about. For me, it doesn't really mean anything. No, and I think he could have at that point as well just not been able to resist himself. Is that kind of leading more to him being a psychopath rather than being psychotic? Because I don't think really I understand the difference. So, okay, so if you're a psychopath, you don't have any empathy you're not able to feel emotions that other people feel you don't really feel emotions you're kind of completely void so when you're looking at the face of a terrified person being murdered you feel nothing you know mm-hmm. it doesn't you're not able to relate and imagine what that might feel like okay i mean there are cases where people who've experienced huge amounts of abuse etc may become very numb to mm-hmm. their emotions but more typically you would associate a psychopath as someone being born with that okay so they're not hearing voices or anything they just don't they don't feel anything if you didn't feel sadness if you didn't feel pain if you didn't feel empathy why wouldn't you go around killing everyone yeah it's it wouldn't feel bad to you it wouldn't feel unpleasant yeah so that's a psychopath psychosis is an illness it's where the transmitters and the um structures of your your brain etc that's when things have gone wrong and typically at that point it isn't your own thoughts a lot of the time it's your hearing voices or even just your thoughts become they're telling you what to do they're no longer organic originating from you your thoughts will be like you need to kill that person you need to hurt them and i think if you look at those two different scenarios you can justify both of them in this case realistically so say he's has a very severe episode of psychosis uh the voices or his thoughts are telling him you need to kill these these two women you need to kill your wife uh you need to remove michelle's heart you know that we can't rule that out as a possibility or let's say he's a psychopath and maybe he realizes i'm never going to get this chance again i'm i'm alone with michelle i'm fascinated by her i could just kill her now and he spent years controlling his urge to kill Mm -hmm. it may not seem like it assuming he has killed but he's not gone round murdering people constantly he's planned it and he's killed strangers and he's never been caught and he's researched it you know he's been very thorough because i think what's you you have to think about here is if he's a psychopath why did he kill himself yeah he's not feeling guilty um if anything he's probably feeling satisfied he's got an adrenaline rush which if you don't feel emotions is is kind of as close to arousal and and feeling as you're gonna get Mm -hmm. so i think it strikes me as strange that he then goes on to kill himself so i think that's why i kind of wonder if he if he was a psychopath and he really was born bad then maybe he just couldn't resist this opportunity he you know he's been holed up for a few days seeing his family which he wouldn't really particularly care about if he's not got very many emotions yeah um he's trapped in a house of them and he just suddenly can't resist the urge anymore to to kill this woman that he kind of worships so he gets his wife out the way 
and then he kills this woman but he realizes you know he's not a stupid man that actually he's had the last laugh he he it's obviously him there's no other suspects he can't get away with this anymore yeah. um and maybe he doesn't want to get away with it maybe you know he's he's killed the, a person that he truly not cared about but admired and yeah. and adored as much as a monster can and so after that you know not to sort of make it trivial maybe he just thinks well that's it i've i've kind of completed it yeah i think that's actually that's that's fascinating actually because i didn't i was literally not by my microphone when i said that (laughs) (laughs) yeah like i do actually think that's really fascinating i think the thing that's always been in my head is that if these were like kind of psychotic breaks you know, maybe maybe he didn't kill the other women or maybe he did and maybe it was just that he'd been out of the house or whatever and he'd managed to find them. But to me, that seems odd. I think to me, it seems more likely that he is a psychopath um, rather than being psychotic. Although I don't know, because in his police interview when he was 13, police said, did you get any enjoyment when you shot your parents? And he said, no, I didn't want to. That's the thing, because I love my parents. We were happy. And then I don't get that. That sounds more psychosis, doesn't it? Yeah, I think so. And I think the the terminology is maybe key in a way here because I think psychotic breaks, which is a common phrase used, but that implies that it's something that is turned on and off. You know, yeah. you're detached from reality, you're back in reality. And that just isn't how it works. Oh, okay. A lot of the time it's much more enduring. So really, in that case, you're more a subject of how much can you resist the voices in your head and the hallucinations but then sometimes they might be stronger yeah and they might not always be asking you to go around killing people but let's say when he was a child they started then but and if he did kill these women in between maybe he was out fishing and then suddenly the opportunity was there and these demand hallucinations these thoughts that are telling him he needs to kill someone they might start because the opportunity is there there's a woman on her own and he happens to be there and for whatever reason say he's got some kind of weapon so so i think it's just about how you think about the context of it as well so then it's not that he then wakes up the next day absolutely fine and goes about his life i mean this is an enduring mental illness it is with you forever really unless it's acknowledged and treated so i do think it's unlikely that he ignored them for 10 years in between uh, his killing as a child and killing his his wife and niece um but that isn't to say that he was fine in those 10 years oh okay so yeah. i th- and i think that's the thing so i think that i think that's the key i think genuinely you've just hit the nail on the head there it is that term psychotic break that has got me and actually from what i can you know see on a lot of forums and conversations i've had with other people um it's that terminology that maybe has been confusing a lot of people because it does make it sound like you snap in and you snap out but i guess actually what you're saying makes a lot of sense you're saying that he always has these voices but they're not always telling him that he has to kill and so yeah maybe it's just by chance when he's out and you know then these voices see someone like a woman by herself and their voices are urging him then to kill her that's fascinating Sal that's actually really fascinating because I I genuinely think it is that key difference in the terminology and the fact that we assume or a lot of people assume that psychotic break does mean you switch it on and off whereas obviously what you're saying is not that yeah but it's not to say that I think that's definitely I think it's probably also possible that he was a psychopath I think it's a fascinating case unfortunately because he killed himself you're never going to get the real insight into what was going on you won't ever be able to analyze yeah i think there's very much evidence for both theories here um when you look at the depression or you look at the fact that there's all these killings that he could be linked to i think 
there's yeah there's evidence to support both sides and without him being here and and having a proper psychiatrist or psychologist sitting down talking to him I don't think we can ever truly know so I think it is fascinating and also I think it probably does shine a light on um the complexities of Mm. of serial killers a lot of the time I think we do very much stereotype them as either people who've had these horrible abused childhoods and have become monsters or as they're born evil but actually a lot of that just makes us feel more comfortable it makes us feel like oh well you know a normal person could never kill someone because you know if a normal person's not faced all this abuse or isn't born bad but actually it isn't that isn't the the reality of it the brain and human behavior is so much more complicated and there's so many ways in which our brain can diverge from the norm and have these kind of various mental illnesses and you have to there's a lot of people that will if untreated or will go through periods of of having very uncomfortable thoughts and hallucinations but actually they will also be very highly functioning members of society when that's treated and under control and acknowledged Mm -hmm. it's something that lots of people live with and won't ever go on and kill someone so yeah I think it's definitely been a fascinating case so thank you Britt for that yeah no genuinely um I I think you've really changed kind of like my views on it really which seems to happen in every bloody episode we do our listeners must think I'm so (laughs) stupid well otherwise you'd just read them to yourself (laughs) (laughs) just like every episode I say something and then you're like yeah but what about xyz and I'm like oh my god yeah my mind has changed (laughs) (laughs) um but no thanks so much Sal that was genuinely so so interesting just didn't realize how smart you were girl (laughs) so um so yeah I think we should just leave it there but thanks Sal for all your insight that was really genuinely so interesting um definitely changed my mind and hopefully opened up kind of different avenues of thought for other people who maybe know this case before because this is quite a well-known case so I know that this is one that uh, that listeners would probably have heard about before so hopefully we gave you or Sal gave you a uh, different sort of avenue to think about there thanks so much for listening everyone and thank you Brit, for your suggestion if you guys have a case that you want to hear us cover then you can go into the description box and there is a form there that you can fill out um take Ooh. less than two seconds and you can just tell us what you what cases you want us to cover can i fill one out yeah well do you have a case that you want us to cover no i like the surprise <laughs> we're not doing <laughs> gypsy rose blanchard which i know is what you're gonna say <laughs> um but yeah thanks guys join us on sunday where we are going to be heading over to australia for a case um just kind of word of warning that case does involve a um child murder so um yeah that's just a warning for anyone who maybe doesn't want to listen to that kind of thing but hopefully we'll see you there on sunday thanks guys so much for listening and thanks sal for bringing your brain bye